so grateful for each of you as you choose to spend the evening with us here at Calvary Chapel South Bay as we continue our journey through the book of Genesis. We're finally coming to the end of what really is the primary historical section. We've had all of the things pertaining to Adam. We have the beginnings of the patriarchs. We will next week get to to Abram, the father ultimately of the Jewish people. And so as you might imagine, because the lineage of Jesus in the genealogies in both Luke and Matthew's gospel has to be traced all the way back to Adam ultimately, we need to have a record that takes us all the way back past the flood and back to the time of Adam. And so here we get to the line of Shem, the descendants, the, the generations, the toldath of the godly line of Shem, the Semitic peoples. And when we use the term Semitic, we have to use it in its proper context as far as the Bible is concerned. It's not just the Jewish people, but it in fact is the Arab peoples in the region as well. And so uh, all of the peoples of the region that was uh, ultimately settled by Shem would have been Shemites or Semite. And so that's going to include uh, the, the Arab nations that are also in that region. And so to that end, the Jewish people and the Arab peoples are really brothers and sisters, genetically even. And so tonight, the genealogy of Shem, or the line of Shem. Would you join me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the incredible power of your word to teach us as your people. And Lord, though this looks like a long list of names, many of which are hard to pronounce and may have little meaning to us in our day and time. But these provide a backdrop of us being able to trace the lineage of our Savior all the way back to Adam. And so, God, we ask that you would move in our midst tonight and as we study, uh, help us to grow as your children, be better sheep suited for your purpose, the Master's purpose. Bless us, we pray, with your Spirit's presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 10, we'll finish chapter 11 uh, before we really get to the life of Abram, who will ultimately become Abraham. For this is the genealogy of Shem. And Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. And so you can see the overlap here between the generations before the flood, the generations after the flood, and in fact, uh, some, of, some of the descendants of Noah are going to live for a significant time. Uh, they were actually fairly old when the flood came. In this case, 98 years old, and then the flood came. And after he begat Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begat sons and daughters. And I want you to begin to take a note of something as we go through this genealogy. It is the descending number of years that mankind lives. If you remember prior to the flood, you see man living in excess of 900 years. We're going to see it cut to 500, and then to 400, and then to 300, and then to 200, and finally, by the time of the writing of Moses, 70 are the years of the number of man, and 80 if by reason of strength. And so the effects of sin in the world, because you remember it was Adam's sin that brought death. 
And so the conditions that existed prior to the flood, the entire surface of the world is disturbed by the flood, and now man is subject to those things which were put into uh, movement, if you will, at the time of the flood. And so what we call the laws of thermodynamics, the laws of conservation of energy and of entropy, the things, things tend towards decay. They tend to get greater and greater, and the longer things exist, they not only don't get better, but they actually get worse. And so you'll see that beginning here as the longevity of each one of these patriarchs decreases as, as we move through this genealogy. And Arphax had lived for 35 years and begot Salah. And after he begot Salah, Arphax had lived for 400 years and 403 years. And he begot sons and daughters. And remember that this is a Jewish genealogy. And so the names of the daughters, by and large, are not listed. And, and while we would not do this the same way today, it was how things were done then. And we also don't know for certain that every son, and we certainly don't know that every daughter is listed. And so there are a significant number of people that are listed here, though the lineage is listed in such a sufficient way as to take the genealogy. Once we get to the time of Christ, it will be able to trace it all the way back through these various named sons, all the way back to Adam. And that is the actual purpose uh, for likely Shem himself keeping this genealogy. And Salah lived for 30 years and begot Eber. And after he begot Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. And Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. And so you'll notice something here. They have uh, at least some of their children fairly late in life. But again, we don't know if there were children prior to this. It's highly likely that there were children prior to this. It's not likely that in a day and time when the command has been to be fruitful, multiply on the earth, other people are going to wait till they're well into their 30s to have their first child. And so it's highly likely that there are additional children in view. And so after Eber lived for 34 years and we got Peleg, he begot Peleg, and Eber lived for 430 years and we got sons and daughters. And Peleg lived for 30 years and we got Reu. And after he begot Reu, Peleg lived for 209 years and we got sons and daughters. Reu lived for 32 years and we got Serug. And he begot Serug, and Reu lived for 207 years and begot sons and daughters. And so you can see the decreasing longevity uh, as we go through this list. And so Serug lived for 30 years and begot Nahor. And after he begot Nahor, uh, Serug lived for 200 years and begot sons and daughters. And Nahor lived for 29 years and begot Terah. And so now we're in the final generation that will bring forth uh, Abram. And begot Terah, and Nahor lived for 119 years, and begot sons and daughters. And after Terah lived for 70 years, he begot Abraham, or Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And this is the genealogy of Terah. So Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begot Lot. And so you can see that we're now entering into the period of the true patriarchs, beginning with Abram. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land of Ur of the Chaldeans. And so a very specific area, and we'll dig into this in a little bit. And then Abram and Nahor took wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. And the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Ishka. 
But Sarai was barren and had no child. And it's, again, a very specific notation that Sarai was barren because she ultimately is going to be in the line of promise and the child of promise has to be born in the land of promise. Otherwise, Scripture is a farce. So Sarai is going to remain barren while she's in the land of the Chaldeans. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot and the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. And so the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now you're probably all looking with a glazed look in your eye. How do you make this interesting? I'll give it my best. For almost two centuries after the dispersion, the confusion of language at Babel, you, you kind of see mankind really not having a whole lot of contact. You notice there's no spiritual history here that's mentioned. It doesn't mean that everyone was godless, but it does mean that at the Tower of Babel, something was going on with mankind. Mankind had turned away from the Lord. Mankind had begun, began to become what we would call humanist and existentialist, began to do his own thing, began to make himself the center of the universe. And so much like the period with the ending of the Old Testament and the prophets until the time of the New, God is relatively silent for a couple of hundred years. He, he's not doing a whole lot in the sense other than allowing the world's population to grow. And so this is that period of time. You have all these people that were dispersed at Babel. Their languages are confused. They cannot communicate with each other as they used to communicate. And they're going to geographically begin to scatter out across most of what we would call Asia, Asia Minor, and well into Europe. And so it is at this time, remember the flood has happened. Uh, the, the world itself was reshaped. Um, what we would call today the polar ice caps were probably significantly larger with all that transpired during the time of the flood. The earth was cooled. You have the entire surface of the earth covered with water. You have mud. That mud is in the state of evaporation. There's extra water vapor. There's no doubt extra clouds. There's less sun. And so this is that period of time when highly likely those great ice sheets or the glacial ages, as we would call them today, extended down into much of North America uh, from the polar caps and then receded back and they formed the Bering Land Bridge and the Malaysian Land Bridge and all of those things that would have allowed for these peoples to either move in some form of a primitive watercraft or to literally walk across what today would be some fairly shallow ocean like the Bering Sea or the, Mal the Straits of Malaysia. Uh, highly likely those areas were uh, either above the surface of the water for a period of time or certainly had uh, some ice sheets. And so man is moving out. Uh, and in order for God to keep his covenant promises, he has in view that there is going to be a Messiah. As I shared this morning, God has always loved us. God has always loved you. God has never not loved you. God is omniscient and omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere. He knows everything. 
And so from the beginning of time, because you have been seen, we have been seen, just exactly as Ephesians 1 declares, we have always been the beloved, the elect of God, those who've been predestined to be God's children from the beginning of time. In order to do that, God has had to have had a plan. And that plan is actually in view here in Genesis chapter 11. Because there is a single line that is going to be preserved. That single line is going to be the line of the Messiah. That single line is going to begin with several covenant promises. And one of them is coming soon, that covenant with Abraham. God is going to make him the father of the Jewish people. And our king, our savior, the Messiah, is from the Jewish people. And so before he does that, we have Abraham, we have Isaac, we have Joseph, we have Jacob, we have ultimately Israel, and we have all of the birth of the 12 tribes. But God is preserving the lineage of the promised seed. That's his whole point for keeping these names so that we would have them to this day. This is the promised line. It's the record, if you will, of the genealogy ultimately from Jesus all the way to Adam. Because if Christ is not related to Adam, then Christ cannot die for the sins of all mankind. He has to be directly related all the way to Adam in order to make that all-sufficient sacrifice. And so this is an important thing, though it seems boring to us because it's a bunch of names of people and how long they lived. And in spite of what it might seem to us, it is extremely important. So Shem, here, I I believe he kept this record. And if you compare chapter 5 and chapter 11 together, uh, you're going to find that decline that I talked about in longevity and in age. And so this this account is going to be taken up by Terah, who's going to be the ninth generation after the flood. And many people assume that because they're Uh, we're not actually told whether there is or is not any type of uh, gap in in these genealogies. I personally believe that it's highly likely that not every son is listed. And so we don't know for sure exactly how many people. But there are some interesting things that are put forth in this whole narrative that kind of gives us a little bit of insight uh, into the way that we look at our world today. Now, most of you probably know that there is not a plethora of archaeological evidence for mankind that extends back more than about 3,500 years. And so if you talk to any anthropologist or any archaeologist and they're engaged in the study of ancient civilizations and finding the record, specifically uh, the record of human life, in other words, we're looking for burials, we're looking for bones, we're looking for stones, We're looking for those things which are related to people. If mankind had actually been on the face of the earth, as long as an evolutionist would currently say, which is up to now about 2.5 million years, if mankind had actually been here, you would expect there would be massive amounts of evidence of man being here had man been here for that long. The simple fact of the matter is there isn't and a vast majority of the historical record that we do have goes back 
to roughly the time frame of the biblical narrative. And so it gives us great, a, a great ability to look at the biblical narrative and say, you know, what we really find in the world is what the Bible says. That for the most part, mankind spread out, and about 3,500 years ago, uh, you have most of the major populations of the world uh, gathered in their relative regions, exactly as your Bible says. And from there, there, there are not hundreds and thousands and millions of skeletons of supposedly pre-humanoids who live for millions of years scattered all over the face of the earth. And because man is inherently religious, one of the things that's unique to mankind is we actually bury our dead. And that goes all the way back to the most ancient of peoples in a general sense. And so had there been people on the earth, we take great care because man considers, uh, most men consider all men to be sacred and to be worthy of care and concern even after their death. And yet we don't see any archaeological record, no anthropological record of massive quantities of human beings having existed on the face of the earth for more than a few thousand years. That's it. And even that evidence is fairly scarce. And so it does appear that the biblical narrative uh, is correct. You know, if you look at this longevity issue, Noah lived for 950 years, Shem lives for 600 years, Arphaxad lives for 483, Salah 433, Eber for 464. And by the time you get down to the end of this, you're going to find them living 200 years. What happened? Sin has consequences. Sin's always had consequences. And sin has consequences on all of humankind. When mankind engages in behavior that's contrary to the direction that God wants us to go, we suffer the consequences for it. And and there is little doubt that when you look at the history of mankind on this earth, um, scientists, if you study gerontology, the study of aging, if you look at it today, we actually don't know exactly what kills people. Theoretically, we ought to be able to live much longer than we do. Uh, And yet your Bible is very clear in Psalm 90, in verse 10, the days of our lives are 70 years. And if reason, by reason of strength, they're 80 years, yet their boast is in labor and sorrow, for it, it is soon cut off and we fly away. The Bible actually tells us that ultimately, because of the situation that mankind is in, God's actually put a limit on how long we live. And the strange thing is, we still live within that limit to this day. We've gone up and down a little bit, and now we're a little bit above uh, 80 for at least you ladies, but us guys, we don't live quite as long because we're dumb as bricks, most of us, but uh, we do things we shouldn't do. Amen, men? Yeah, we, it, but the bottom line is, is we live just exactly as long as Psalm 90 says we ought to. And so God's put a limit on it. And it's interesting that he says, because if you live longer than that, it's only going to be in labor and sorrow. You know, that, that longevity thing, I, I, you may have caught it. There was an article, I, I believe it was last week, but I was reading about this guy who has multiple doctorates, and he had been involved in all kinds of astrophysical 
projects all over the world, including some of the world's great telescopes, had studied the heavens, and he lived in Australia, and he had lived out his life. He's now 104 years old. And he got to the place where he was actually going to go to Switzerland to end his own life because he said he was just tired of being alive. That was his whole concern. He said, it's just not worth it. It's not worth getting up in the morning because it's just the same thing over and over again. And, and I've done everything I can possibly do. And that pretty well expresses people's lives without a heavenly perspective. You see, for we who love the Lord, the best is yet to come. And so death doesn't really frighten us. We sorrow when people die, but we don't sorrow as people who don't have hope. We sorrow in hope. We have hope that what lies ahead is better than what we currently have. But if you're just here without Jesus, life can be kind of a bummer if you stick around too long. You know, your body begins to fail, your mind begins to fail. You're just simply getting up and having a meal every day and trying to do a few things so you can keep breathing. I think God actually kind of pre-programmed us. It's like, nah, that's enough. You can come home now. I think he was being kind. For those of you that have physical ailments, you know, and I'm not saying I'm ready to go home to be with Jesus yet, but there are days I wake up, it's like, you know, being dead wouldn't be so bad because I'd be with Jesus. My knees wouldn't hurt anymore. You know, I'd crawl out of bed and instead of, you know, going in to see if, you know, I can actually see without my glasses kind of thing. God sets some limits on us. And so he gives us a record here really of the, the century that's directly after the flood. People have often questioned, well, how did, you know, how could they possibly in 100 years have built the Tower of Babel and some simple mathematics can kind of help you out with that. And, and if there were zero gaps, and you have all the people that are listed here, uh, there, there could easily uh, have been maybe 9,000 people in 100 years. And so that's more than enough to get together and figure out how to make some baked mud bricks and begin to stack up a tower. It would not be an insurmountable task. And the other thing is we don't know exactly how large this tower was. Its purpose was to reach to the heavens. We know that. And so man, people that say, well, it couldn't possibly have happened, they need to really look at the data and ask themselves some simple questions. If you're building a simple structure, it's not like you need a bunch of engineers. Like today, we need 5,000 people just to design the building and then another 5,000 people to inspect the building and eight people working on it to build it. And that's kind of how we, that's how we roll today. But it was not that way then. People just got to work. They got busy building the building. So uh, it is highly likely that they even used children. And so there's no problem, uh, I don't believe, if you had a growth rate of, say, even 8%, the population in that 100 years uh, would have likely been in the thousands. And you've got to remember that God's purpose was to send them out so that they would multiply on the face of the earth. And I would imagine that they accomplished that in a fairly rapid fashion. And so what was the world's population by the time we get to Abraham? And you look at all these, you look at the verses 18 to 25, and you look at that section there of Scripture, and they had sufficient people there to build the Tower of Babel. That's very clear, or God wouldn't have looked at it and said, hey, this is, a, this is a threat. These people are really trying to factor me out of the equation. 
And so you're going to come up with 367 years that, uh, since the flood and, and about 267 since God dispersed them at Babel. So there's almost three centuries. And assuming that the grandsons at least are listed here and that there's a population increase that's probably in the 500% range uh, each year. You, you, can almost, you can almost see that without, without contest that each generation uh, would increase by, by 500% or so, uh, generation over generation. And assuming that generation is maybe 30 years or something like that, giving for full maturity, some type of a marriage arrangement, having a series of children, those children beginning to have children, so there's probably grandchildren even uh, in the picture by that time. And you figure that Abram is the ninth from Shem. Uh, He lived 75 years, so there's two additional generations in his lifetime. So you have probably 11 generations or so of people uh, that would have been on the earth during that period of time. And it becomes exponential. And so just do the simple math and you're going to come up with a population that could have exceeded about the population of the United States. 300 million people. This is a very significant number of people, even though the geographic region that they've moved out into uh, is fairly small. And now you add to this the fact that when you look at the history of that region, specifically the archaeological history of that region, you have very limited population centers. Ur of the Chaldees, the Chaldean area, which would be also Babylon, uh, is one of them. Syria or Assyria would be another. Persia would be another. And all of those areas are fairly ancient in their population centers. But what you don't find is ancient populations in what we would call uh, eastern Russia, in the stands, Kazakhstan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, that area of fairly scant archaeological evidence. All the major cities in that region are found exactly where Scripture says they were. And so when you look at the evidence, it's pretty clear that God was giving us enough evidence to look and say, you know, if we were to go look in this area, I'm thinking we're going to probably find some evidence of civilization because this is thousands of years ago. This is not millions of years ago. So we should be able to find some record of these people. And in fact, we can and have and do. And it's very significant. And so we'll get into that a little bit when we get to Abraham and look at the Canaanite civilizations and all of those things. So yeah, very clear that God's giving us a factual record here. Uh, and the question then becomes, were there gaps in these genealogies? When you look at the historical record, and when I say historical, I mean the literal historical record that is kept by everyone, not just the Bible itself. The father of history, Herodotus, um, classic work on the world's history, when he writes, he mentions only the basic civilizations that are named in this region. And so though he was writing in 500 BC, he fully understood the Chaldean people. He fully understood the Persian people. He fully understood the Mesopotamian people, the Babylonian peoples. He fully understood that those people existed and wrote of them as historical peoples. They're the only ones mentioned in your Bible. And so when you look at world history, you just simply recognize Uh, that God was giving us sufficient information to support 
uh, what we have as, as a historical and an anthropological record as well. You, you just don't find massive amounts of people any place other than this region of the world that are that old. So when we look at the pharaohs, pharaohs also mentioned in Scripture. So we find their historical record as well. And so God's good to us. There's actually no indisputable written historical record um, that, that says anything other than what we have about Persia or Egypt or Samaria or ancient nations. There's no other record historically that disputes what we have in the Bible. And so being an ancient record, uh, we go with it. And I think the biggest thing, and this is, I, I believe, one of the reasons that the record in Genesis is, is so maligned uh, in academic circles. Almost people like me are spoken about in hushed tones like there's no brain cells operating inside of my cranium. Because there is a eschatological issue that's in view here. And that is how long is the Lord going to tarry before he comes back for his church? How, how long is the age of grace? And when you look at the history of mankind, you look at Daniel's prophecy of these 77s uh, and this abbreviation, this final week that's yet to happen, that last seven, that will be preceded by the rapture of the church. And God has continued to work through mankind and has used this number. We are in the seventh millennial, millennium now. And so it does not shock me that People would not want to think that mankind could have been here only for maybe 7,000 years or so because that might lead them to believe that the Bible is absolutely correct, which means we don't have a whole bunch of time left before the Lord comes. And I think that is actually the real reason behind some of the things that are, that are said. Because if in fact the Lord is going to return uh, during that time that we would say is the seventh millennium. We're near the end of the age of grace. I can't tell you that I know that's next week, next month, or next year, but I know this, some simple math puts it in the realm of possibility. And so you might want to be prepared. You might want to be looking up. Because the flood, it's only about 2,350 years ago. There's 1,500 years before that. There's been 2,000 years since Christ was born. We're heading down to the end. And me, I'm kind of looking forward to it in a strange way. Because I get to go home to be with Jesus. Amen? And finally, as you pick up in verse 26 through the end of the chapter, you have a relatively focused thing here. And I want to just speak to it for a couple of reasons. I have two groups of people that generally come to me with problems about this passage. One of them is, well, I'll just call them perverts. They are people who come to me and they go, well, I don't know why I shouldn't be able to marry two women or three women. Or five. Can I just tell you guys, women never come to me and go, I'd like to have five husbands. Just saying. Never, not once have I ever had that happen. But I have had a whole bunch of guys 
well, you know, uh, Abraham and, uh, and uh, that Solomon, he had a thousand concubines, and God seemed to be okay with that. Look, God had a whole bunch of things that he allowed right after the flood that we find quite objectionable. And in fact, God actually codified in the Mosaic Law as actually being a problem later. But during this period of time, people did in fact marry sisters. And most of these early patriarchs were related very closely. It does not mean that that's okay with God today. It also doesn't mean that these people were all in sin because what we find today is acceptable was not acceptable then. God simply allowed the marrying of half-sisters and cousins, and though we find it quite creepy to us, and multiple wives as well, uh, God had his reasons for allowing that. And I believe in most cases it was because he was preserving his people. He did not want to have the foreign gods introduced into the lineage of what would be the Jewish people and consequently then the lineage of the Messiah. And so he kept the Hebrew people, the, the relatives of Eber, this particular son of Shem, uh, very close. And so uh, there, there was some things that we would find uh, objectionable. Uh, Jewish tradition, however, says that even Sarai was uh, likely uh, not who we think she was and that she was acknowledged later as Arab. Maybe it was a cousin at first, but we know it's not his niece. Uh, In fact, it was his half-sister. And so uh, we find that kind of strange and weird. God's Word says it. I just take it for what it says. And so, guys, don't come to me and say, how come I can't have three wives, because I'll just slap you in the love of Jesus, of course. The Mosaic Law will actually forbid these things, so bottom line is even God came to a point in time when he says the spiritual purity issue is over, uh, the world has reached the population that it should, and so I'm, I'm putting some limits on this. Sarai's barrenness is noted here. Um, so that Abraham, kind of unlike Haran and Nahor, uh, had no children either in Ur or in Mesopotamia. And again, as I said, the child of promise has to be born in the land of promise. Uh, we, we know that we're going to be given details about Messiah's life, that he would be born uh, in Bethlehem, the city of David. And that, in fact, is where he would be born, and that's in the land of promise. He, he could not have been born in Mesopotamia or in Ur. And so God divinely, I think, seals up Sarai's womb so that they don't have any children while they're not in the promised land. Terah is kind of, this is a picture, and I want to just, I don't want to extrapolate this out too terribly far. But Abraham, the family, leaves Ur, and they're supposed to do that. They're supposed to go to, to Canaan. They're on their way to the promised land, But they have a little tough time getting gone. And there's a couple of things spiritually that I think we can glean from this. When God speaks to you and tells you it's time to go, it's really time to go. And dragging your feet and camping on the edge and not going all the way where you're supposed to be, generally speaking, doesn't bring good results. 
And this is going to be very costly in the life of Abraham and his family because he's going to have to rescue his nephew Lot. Had they just gone on this faith journey and put their eyes on Canaan and kept going, they would have gotten there quite a bit sooner. But they stalled. God had spoken. They knew God had spoken. And while we honor the faith of Abraham because he was a man of faith, he kind of struggled every once in a while with that faith. And so he stops. He's kind of, instead of going directly westward, really trusting God, he kind of, well, we'll just go up the Mesopotamian Valley. I mean, it's kind of nice this time of year. But up the Mesopotamian Valley were some of the enemies that he was trying to avoid. It was nicer. It was greener. It was more prosperous. There were cities that way. There was nothing. You ever look on a map and look from modern day Babylon and you look at what lies directly to the west, it's nothing but inhospitable desert all the way until the Mediterranean coast in Israel. It is one of the most desolate places on the planet. And so Abraham didn't take the direct route. He kind of messed around a little bit, and he took the northern route. It was safer, but I think God wanted him to take the, short, the shorter route and get there sooner. And so he has to pass by Babylon. He has to pass by Nineveh, the site that would become Nineveh. He has to go past these areas to where there are people who are worshiping false gods. He, he, has to, he has to try and deal with materialism, sucking him in. And he gets sucked in a little bit. And I don't want to condemn anyone that's in here tonight. I'm not saying that you know, there's anything wrong with you wanting a nicer house or nicer cars or a better job. Or, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. But if those things keep you from doing what God tells you to do, that's where the danger comes. If all of a sudden the attraction of going past Babylon sucks you into Babylon because the enemy convinces you there's something good in Babylon, or the enemy convinces you there's something good to be had in Nineveh, then you're in a dangerous place. Because here's what happens. Initially, the enemy is going to allow you to have some success. He's going to give you a few extra things. You're going to be, well, it's not so bad. I can be a Christian and live in Babylon too. I can be a Christian. And I mean, these Ninevites aren't that bad. I mean, you know, they make some nice barbecue. And before you know it, you start to justify why you're staying where God told you you're not supposed to be. If God tells you to move, if there's a lesson to be learned from Abram, let's get going. Instead of going up through Syria and taking the long way, he could have shortened this by a very long time. And while he may have done it because of the advanced age of the increasing age of Terah and all the sons and they're all mature men and they're having to deal with all the family issues, there's no doubt there's some reasons. 
but he settles permanently. Terah locks down. And he ends up dying. He, he doesn't make it to the promised land. They all started out together, and not all of them made it. Be careful, men, how you lead your family. Because if, if you stop in Mesopotamia, your family may be stuck in Mesopotamia on the way to the promised land. They may not make it. He sees you look at this. Tara, there's a little issue with Acts chapter 7 and what the life of Terah's, length of Terah's days are here in Genesis 11, but it's actually easily solved because it's not a genealogical problem, it's a spiritual problem. When Terah stopped, when Haran stopped, when they went to Mesopotamia and stayed there, it killed him spiritually. He was dead. He was dead to God. That doesn't mean that he completely lost favor, but he was no longer even focusing on what God wanted. It would be another 30, another, well, really another 75 years that he would live in that region. And it's a sad commentary. I don't want to have this commentary on my life. You know, I kind of was thinking that, you know, this week's been kind of weird, just really sick and up and down. And I started thinking about it. It's like, man, thank you, God, that I still get to do something that matters. Because what happened here is they kind of moved in on a golf course community, I think, in Mesopotamia. They were on the eighth hole there of Babylon course or something. I don't know. You know, it's they, they kind of stopped, and, and all of a sudden life didn't have purpose, and there was no meaning, and they, they were no longer engaged in the things of the Lord. And because they were not engaged in the things of the Lord, you kind of see this life that started out really good. This godly patriarch was used to, to record part of Scripture, this man Terah. Gets involved in the Chaldean idolatries. Part and parcel of of the trade and the culture of the region. We'll find that out in the book of Joshua. But he didn't finish well. We should all want to finish well. We should want to run the race right to the end. And that doesn't mean that you can't do some different things for the Lord. It doesn't mean you have to do the same thing over and over again until you die doing it. It just means that you shouldn't waste time stopping where you shouldn't be and doing what you shouldn't do. And so it's kind of a, a somber warning, if you will, and it's also a testimony of a man who was spiritually cast off. It's the exact opposite of what the Apostle Paul was talking about. You know, we, we, we do have to kind of look at our own lives and say, you know what, I need to do whatever is necessary to continue on to do what God's called me to do. And sometimes I just have to tell my flesh, no. We'll get to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, but as you get there in verse 27, the Apostle Paul says, therefore I run, run thus, not with uncertainty, but I fight, but not as one who beats the air. I discipline my body and I bring it to subjection lest when I have preached to others, 
I should become disqualified myself. The Apostle Paul was so concerned with finishing well that he could have well said, don't do what Tara did. Don't drive up the Mesopotamian Valley and look and see all the good things and say, well, it must be that God wants me to go there because that looks nice. God may be calling you to challenge. He may actually be purposing challenge in your life because he knows what's best for you so that you can finish well. Now, I believe personally that Tara loved the Lord and I, I think that we'll see him in heaven. But he wasn't useful. He stayed where he shouldn't have stayed. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you this because I've been there. I remember my last couple of years when I was in business. I had rededicated my life to the Lord and I'm like, God, I've wasted so much time and so much of your resources. And, I, and I'm parked here and great, still making great money and doing all kinds of wonderful things with it. But I was miserable because God had spoken. He had already told me what he wanted to do. But I was like, well, you know, I kind of like it here. And I remember I was sitting on my desk in my office one day. And I was like, Jeff, when are you going to do what I ask you to do? And two days later, I turned in my resignation at the company and and then I was a janitor at a church. I went from being a corporate president to a janitor voluntarily. It doesn't make a bit of sense in the world, but it made every sense in God's economy. Because he wanted to move us. He wanted to use us in new ways. And he couldn't use us because we were... We had a tent set up in Mesopotamia. Don't do it. God says, move, go. By the time Abram hears from the Lord in chapter 12, he's going to actually hear, get up from your father's house. It's time to move. It's time to go. Abram wants to be that blessing to all the families of the earth. He can't delay. Some really interesting stuff lies ahead. All this incredible history of this man who's the father of faith. It's going to be exciting. I know that. I love what's coming next. And we won't have to do a genealogy for a while. <laughs> Would you pray with me? The worship team's going to come back out. Prayer team will come forward. They'll be available for you. I'm going to preserve my voice. Anthony's going to come up and team's going to lead us. Father, thank you for loving us so deeply and richly. And Lord, we ask that you'd help us if, Lord, any of us in this room have camped in Mesopotamia. We've set up tent because it was really comfortable. God, that you'd shake us up. And, and we, we know that you have made some of us uh, wealthy. Lord, you've given us riches to use for your kingdom. There's nothing wrong with that. Some of us you've placed in, in positions in, in business and in schools and, Lord, places of authority, and, and you've actually done that. But, Lord, there may be some of us that have kind of parked our tent because it's just comfortable and you've been speaking. 
and it's time for us to move. Lord, help us to hear your voice. Help us to do what you say. God, we thank you for your love for us and your care. Thank you that you were gentle with Father Abram. Lord, that in spite of his mess-ups, his failures, Lord, sometimes it just almost seems like he was an unlikely, unlikely candidate. But Lord, we're all unlikely candidates. And we thank you that you can use us just the way we are. Mold us and shape us, change what needs to be changed, help us to be sensitive to your voice. And when you say move, help us to get up and move. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.